0: Science fiction luminaries from around the world have traveled to Seattle, Washington, home of the SF Museum, host to the annual Locus Awards weekend SF extravaganza, and birthplace of both grunge music and the flush toilet, to celebrate the very best in science fiction. And now, coming to you from a quiet but slightly disconnected corner of the Seattle Best Western Plus Hotel, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolfe with extra special guest, Kids Johnson on the Coot Street Podcast! <laughs> I feel like Kermit the... <laughs> you feel like Kermit the Frog. I feel like Fuzzy Bloody Bear. <laughs> you can, no, you can be Kermit the Frog because and I have decided we're Stadler and Waldorf.
1: Oh, the three very
2: nice. Oh, well, I want to be on the front line of that. Let me tell you. That'll be fun. <laughs> uh,
0: well, welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Kitch. It's great to have you with us.
2: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited.
0: Well, it's a big it's a big night there, isn't it? Because this is the is tonight the night the the awards are actually presented. Well, no.
2: No, it's no? when's that? Next time, which is probably sometime in 2013 for you.
0: <laughs> I, I I'd forgotten they've copied the thing that the World Fantasy Awards do, haven't they? They don't want you all running off, so they put the awards in the afternoon.
1: Right, honey.
0: Sneaky. In a Saturday afternoon, not a Sunday afternoon.
3: Like
2: right. right. <laughs> World Fantasy. It's like the first time I was nominated. Uh, in fact. Yeah, the first time I was nominated for a World Fantasy Award. I did not know, and so I made my flight plans for Sunday. And it was only after that that I ended up having to reschedule and
0: re-
2: reschedule the flight, which cost immense amounts of money. Uh-huh. And then I don't get one. So.
0: <laughs> oh, that's terrible. See, that's the thing. It, it's always a dilemma. And, of course, for you in these award-nomination-rich years that the last four <laughs> or five years have been – And I don't think that I'm overstating it to say that in awards nomination terms, and let's face it, awards victory terms, it's been a little bit sort of dominant. There's always that thing about do you go, do you not go. Have you been to all these conventions, Kitch?
2: No. um, In fact, I missed the Nebulas this year and I believe last year too. Hmm. Um, I've just been – summers are a busy and complicated time for me. And so I just – the Nebulas happen at the worst – possible time um the last two years my parents have wanted to take a cruise to alaska and that's when it was Mm. so a cruise to alaska wins because it's mom (laughs) and dad otherwise it would have been at the nebulas but i do try to go because it is a tremendous honor um sometimes it just doesn't happen but this year i am making it to the hugos if i have to crawl (laughs) i'm gonna find a nice dress if i have to like mug some woman at an opera and steal it
0: you, you're not finding you're not suffering from awards burnout and it's like oh it's another nebula huh?
2: oh ho-hum well it, actually my advisor uh in the mfa program who's wilton barnhart um when i won the third one in a row he said now you can make a hinge
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so so if i get four then i can make a coffee table
3: that would be good for successive wins, do you
2: know? Kessel, John Kessel uh, did a little like, searching, desultory searching, and he thinks that three in a row is, is either the record or more likely a tie. Um, I can't believe that because there are people like Bob Silverberg. I cannot believe he has not won one a year for decades, but I guess that may be possibly true.
0: But not to sort of puff up your ego in this, of course, that's three wins in a row, but it's five nominations in a row as well.
2: I guess it is. (laughs) Uh, It's very strange to me. I mean, uh, you know, I I, I went to Clarion West and uh, Connie Willis was one of our many brilliant instructors. We also Mm -hmm. had Ursula, Octavia, Chip Delaney, um, Tappan King and Ed Bryant. So it was an amazing year.
1: Was Octavia there?
2: Octavia yeah, week wow. two, she was great. It was I think the first time she ever taught. Oh wow! And so she was nervous, and of course we had no idea what to do. Right. We were in some ways uh, the feral year because we didn't have a Leslie. Um, we were mm-hmm. staying in dorms in a bad neighborhood and walking eight blocks. Oh, the dog. nearest, the only place we could eat was the cafe. Ca- which was kind of creepy on its own, and then a little teriyaki place where the food was, as far as we could tell, it was the exact same food, and then they changed the name. So <laughs> on day one it was chicken, and on day two it became beef, and on day three it became vegetarian. So we're pretty sure it was like that. But um, but Connie taught, and she said, "Isn't it? This is 1987." She said, isn't it interesting that I'm an overnight success right now when I've been writing for 15 years? And I totally understand that now because isn't it interesting that I've gotten five nominations plus a bunch of other things like the Hugo nominations, the World Fantasy and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I've been writing, I've been publishing in major markets since 1987. I sold to Twilight Zone Mm -hmm. in 1987.
3: And you got the Crawford Award for your first uh, yeah,
2: 1999. 90,
3: no, was that
2: late? It was late because the book didn't come out until oh, then. And okay. they do wait until you write the book right, before uh, yeah. they actually give it to you. It's crazy talk. It seems I like think... you should just be so, able to...
0: So what happened with Fid- Fidoki? Uh, what about Fidoki? Well, I mean, what happened with it? Because that seems to me, to me, the benchmark where suddenly the whole world turns around and starts paying attention. It's about the mid-2000s. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think probably. you're right. It was like 2003 or something and it came up for World fantasy award that year mm-hmm. the, it is interesting. It's like you have to build a critical mass um, And some people build that mass just by volume 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 some people do it by just their pacing They have six stories out in a year mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're like this one is the next new thing because we've seen so much and then you have interesting ones and I think Ken Liu is one of those mm-hmm. where he wrote and then he stopped And now all of it or just we didn't see as much of his stuff. And all of a sudden he is brand new in some ways. And yet he's not. And his expertise really shows in the kinds of stuff he's writing right now.
3: I can't wait to see, for example, and this is going to be interesting for you to watch at Kansas. We should also mention the kids has got one of the few, one of the handful of creative writing positions in the country, which involves science fiction in some way, at least. Uh, yeah. because, it, because you're a, a Sturgeon, I guess you're a permanent Sturgeon Award judge now? Is
2: yeah, right? I um, I won the Sturgeon Award in 1993 ni- 1990 for a short story, Fox Magic in 1993. And there's a lot of stuff which we will not go into in a public <laughs> podcast that happened. But I ended up uh, on the jury as of 1996 or so. And uh, some of that is that uh, I was younger, I was female, I was an award winner. Um, And we didn't have any of those at that point on the ballot. And so it was uh, really interesting. I absolutely had to feel my way because the other judges when I first got involved were Jim Gunn, um, Fred Pohl, and uh, George Zabrowski, Mm. who are all men with strong opinions and very strong science fiction uh, expertise and leanings. The Sturgeon Award is designed to be an award strictly for science fiction, uh, but... I have always felt that because it's named for Sturgeon, it should show some of the heart that Theodore Sturgeon shows. Mm-hmm. It should show that if it's interested in technology, what it's really interested in is what technology does to the human heart.
3: Well, there's also the question that it's, it's interesting. This comes up with the Shirley Jackson awards to some extent, yeah, because some people yeah. think that's a horror story award and it's not, that's not what she did. And my, okay, my favorite Sturgeon story, this is just uh, kind of parentheses, because one of the things I like about talking to kids who were talking earlier today is yeah. that there are, that many writers who really know the history of science fiction in the sense that you picked it up and and know like postmodern and literary writing techniques, the, the Amy Hempel, Laurie Moore kind of thing. But my favorite Sturgeon story is a mainstream story. It's Bianca's Hands.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that story. <laughs> and it's
3: it's gorgeous. Oh, and, my
2: God. It's heartbreaking and wonderful. Yeah. And, wow.
3: and sort of oddly in a way, I'm Nobody me. would have expected in what, 1949
2: or something? Yes. That's a, I mean, one of the things that um, I get up on my hind legs and start work about sometimes is that. I, you know, you look back at the 60s, and there was very transgressive fiction being written in mm-hmm. the 50s and the 60s. You have the wrong people were dying. There's the, the lovers, Philip Jose Farmer, mm-hmm. you know, which is about as overtly transgressive as you can get. I mean, it sets it sets the bar for being transgressive mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and it did it what in like 1952, 19- right? I mean, that's amazing. So why are we not writing that stuff right now? Why are other people not writing stuff that they're kind of afraid to publish? Um, and I, this is something I'm up against right now, Jonathan, yeah. because I'm writing a flash piece right now. It's called Mantis Wives, yeah. and it's incredibly brutal. It's worse than Spar. It's more disturbing, and um, I think scary, at least to me as the writer, than Spar was.
1: And, you know-
0: and now, a technical segue. Due to Wi-Fi connectivity problems, we stopped the podcast and recommenced it. Audio was much better after that, but there are a few little drop-ins drop and drop-outs. We've considered throwing the podcast away, but the conversation was so interesting that we hope you'll be willing to bear with it. We will revisit it again in a few weeks with kids once she's at home, but hopefully it'll prove worth it. Okay, you just recorded this end, and we'll pick up from where we were. Okay. kid was talking about transgressive
3: fiction. She was talking about the the story. She's this flash oh, fiction yes, story. Oh, yes,
1: yes.
0: So tell 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 us all about this flash. Well, what, what you can about this flash fiction?
2: Sparky about transgressive fiction. So this is a story that, uh, it's very short, um, and I think it's probably more objectionable than spar. And I'm a little unsettled by trying to send it out. And um, I probably when I finish it, I will probably send it out because it's not like I write so much that I'm going to write a bunch of stuff and then not send it. But I think I'm going to be careful about the mark. It, I send it to it I mean I feel like it's more it's meaner it's darker than spar was wow. and,
1: um, so, so how and is it like- is
2: very very short and because it's called mantis what perhaps you can figure it out you know <laughs> <laughs> but it's mean and and I don't know what to do with it I really don't Um Neil Clark was tremendously supportive with spar and that was a big deal because I guess um, the the comments in uh, you know in uh, Clark's world, got pretty down there, and he mm. just removed them. He he did not show them to me. He did not tell me they were happening. Uh, I knew because he told me, but he did not tell me give me details. And he got rid of them. So I feel like he is comfortable, and he and he handles transgressive fiction really well. So I feel like he is somebody that if I give if I sell it to him, um, I will feel like I'm in a place where people expect difficult fiction. Mm. And that's okay. That's that's great if I'm with somebody who try and you actually are one of those people too, but I don't think you could well, you could publish it because then everybody would go, Oh my God, it's like he's publishing all this aggressive stuff, but now you don't have Eclipse so so I'll just wow, have
0: I've, got, to, I've got I'll 50. just
2: have to write it first. The- yes, that-
0: no, you got yeah original isn't that always the way it goes, though, kids? You you write it, then you worry about th- that afterwards?
2: I really do. I mean, I actually was signed up to do a bunch of uh, – um, I had agreed to do a bunch of stories for anthologies, and I find I love the challenge, but I am just – I just don't write enough for me to want to spend six weeks doing the best I can with somebody else's idea instead of spending six months working on my own thing, you know, on something that – I'm the only person who determines whether it's a great idea.
0: Because you really so are you you can't you, write to, sorry, no you go ahead, Gary.
3: I was just gonna say you can't you are not one of these people who can write to demand like I'm doing an anthology of oh, you know, uh, I don't know. I have squids in space and Yeah, uh,
2: oh man, man, I'm on it.
3: Oh you're on okay, squids, squids in squids Space, I'm right.
2: all over it. It'll <laughs> be a touching love story of a boy and his squid. It'll be great. It'll it'll end well for everybody. I, most of my friends think that I write much too dark stuff, and so um, when they when they tease uh, my friend Lisa wants me to write a story with a weasel, but then she had to very carefully I did say okay, and nothing bad happens to the weasel. The weasel is happy. It has no unhappy background. It's just a weasel having a good time, and then the story ends. Like I'll get right to-
0: That's really not going to work. Uh (laughs) that's not much of a story really I mean really that's like one time I was working at a a bookstore and a woman came in and she wanted books with talking dragons it occurs to me oh
3: wow no well
2: there are all sorts of cute little um, animal stories from the 50s and 60s that are just like that. You know, like wacky otter stories and, you know, um, Bambi Rascal meets- the Raccoon and stuff. These things are like um, just mainlined by little kids, you know, in Midwestern towns anyway. And
3: what you really want to do is write Bambi Meets Godzilla.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And really, you know, Bambi Meets like a Godzilla, you have 30 seconds to get in and out. Exactly. Right. Because that's all the idea is really good for, it, unless you go all the way out there and then you write the actual novella, and then that's a completely different story. With that is just your initial premise. But yes, Bambi meets Godzilla. I
3: think the idea, because you're talking about transgressive fiction, and there seems to me there are, are different kinds of it. And and one of the people who's a master of this was was Tom Dish uh, with things like The Brave Little Toaster.
1: Oh yeah.
3: But. but you know so stories that are absolutely sweet on the surface and really dark underneath and, and then um, and then there's Spar, and that's the tradition of transgressive fiction that goes back to Sturgeon and Farmer but then yeah. there's something like story kit which is transgressive in a kind of literary way that you're not giving the reader everything they think they need to have a story yeah
2: and that was fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it really was um, As a writer, and I was saying this to Gary earlier, Mm -hmm. I get easily bored as a writer, which sounds kind of fatuous and self-indulgent, but... Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't actually read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of nonfiction, and I spend a lot of time not reading. And so when I write, I have to write stuff that actually engages me. And this is why I'm never going to be able to write a popular novel. I may write novels that are well-read or Mm well-regarded or something, but I'm never going to be able to write a novel that a lot of people like. I just um, I get quickly bored. I walk away from books all the time. Um, I've read so many books in my life. And it's like, if it's not as good as Moby Dick, why am I reading it? Um, well, because Nabokov mm-hmm. turned out to be really, really great, which I did not know until I read uh, Lolita last year. But generally is, yeah. speaking, I will read something. I'm like, well, it's no Tristram Shandy. Well, it's no Jane Austen. Well, you know. It's, it's no Fanny Burney. It's no Samuel Johnson. It's no Jonathan Swift. You know, these mo- most writing—it like really isn't Jonathan Swift. So how do I? You know, I have right. to find a way to to be interested enough in my own story to put all the time into rewriting it, because rewriting is the misery and bane of my existence. Oh, and yet the part I like.
3: Jonathan, what was it like? I'm putting you on the spot as an as an editor. What was it like? dance. Yeah. But to see something like StoryKit come in as a submission for Eclipse, which is unlike anything else I'm sure that you'd ever seen sent in
0: for Eclipse. You
2: were so patient.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was actually great uh, to, to get a story like that because, first of all, it is different. And that's a really important thing to put into any, any project. And also I, c- I could see how it, wor- it worked. I think the, the point where I was nervous about it was reading it the first time because, huh. not to be simplistic about stories, it all depends on the end. You know, it's like you've got, yes. to, you've got to carry something through the structure. I mean, you you, you can knock out as many of the, the support poles of a story structure as you like, I guess. Mm. But you've got to have enough that it carries from point to point to point. Right, and the reader right. can actually pick up those clues, those pieces of emotion, those thoughts, and get to an end point. And it was only at the very end of story kit that you go, yeah, okay, I can see how this all works now. And then I felt really good about it. There was there was some going back and forth, and mostly, in fairness, not my sort of editorial genius, but kids wanting to um, <laughs> to, 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 to tweak it here and there, making it stronger. Mm-hmm. But
1: and did
2: uh, oh my goodness!
0: But it all but yeah. it came out really really well. I was I mean it was, it was one of those things. I mean you know, you're talking about transgressive fiction and everything else, and whether the yeah. field today is open to transgressive fiction, which is a very arguable point i think it's increasingly open to the idea of transgression and to transgressive approaches but i'm not sure that even now it particularly loves transgressive fiction and yeah structurally something like storykit is very much transgressive and i you know there was some reaction to it along the lines of is this really genre Mm. Right, right. Uh, can you, tra- yeah. can, you know, can you trace this through that way? How do you kind of justify it putting it in the book and right, calling it yeah. um, you know a science fiction or fantasy story and,
1: right, exactly
0: and, and my answer to that is I don't <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that's why we love you
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I, I, the, the reason that I love doing Eclipse and having people like you write for it was that um, I wanted to build up a an umbrella under which I could put stuff. Right. and where the real you know, the, the real criteria was that it'd be good stuff and that means things that are I guess as straight and middle genre as you can come with really straightforward plot structures and everything else straight out of the Clarion manual and as, and some, <laughs> and yes. something like Story Kit because I think that's what makes for a rewarding reading experience. Um, I would have loved that story Kit was read more broadly that year than it was. But mm-hmm. it was overshadowed by your other story that came out at the time. I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, because that is the same year that uh, Man Who Bridged the Mist came out, right. and it uh, and because it was marginal because it wasn't yeah. quite fantasy or science fiction. Um, I think a lot of people said, well, it's not fantasy, mm. so we're not going to, you know, how, are we, how would we review this? We would review it by saying it's not fantasy, mm. and uh, similarly, it's not science fiction or something, and Man Who Bridged the Mist, which is a much more conventional story, um, fits, as Gary has said, mm-hmm. into both genres. It is both fantasy and science fiction, depending on how mm. you read it. And I think that's a big part of it. But with StoryKit, I feel that one of the – I loved having it in Eclipse. Oh, Big Love Fest, kiss, kiss. But I did (laughs) love having it in Eclipse. It would have been fun to have it in a mainstream market as well. Um, But I think that it's interesting for us to push a little bit and we have a tendency and i speak for myself because i just went through an interview process mm-hmm. at the university of kansas to teach creative writing mm-hmm. and i spent that whole interview process which was something like 12 hours of interviews because wow. academics is crazy yeah I know. going and another thing and i would like <laughs> what you can't see is i'm shoving things off my shoulder and another thing Science fiction and fantasy are just as legitimate as mainstream fiction and literary fiction, and we're just as good, and there's no reason to accept shoddy science fiction,
1: all <laughs> fiction,
2: blah, blah, blah. And by hour five, one of the people who was at the interview said, Kish, Kish, you don't have to put the chip down. They actually said that. Put the chip down. I was like, okay, got it. But I love the fact that, I mean, sometimes the chip thing is us bringing it to yes. the discussion. Uh, Sometimes it is them bringing it to the discussion because I think that there's a lot of literary jealousy because they somehow perceive that we're rich and that (laughs) we're read more. And that people don't understand quality, so you know they'll read any crap. And what's the point of writing good fiction? But we have a similar—we have our own. Share.
3: Absolutely, we talked, Jonathan, and I talked about this before. There's there is a pattern of reverse discrimination where yeah. science fiction readers and any number of them. And to be honest, our good friend Charles was was, was has said this to me. I can't read any mainstream fiction because right. it doesn't. That's nonsense. You know, it, it's not that they can't read any mainstream fiction because by the end of his life, Charles was reading young adult. Uh, Romance. Yeah, a, yeah. Uh, once he discovered it. But the fact is that science fiction people can be as intolerant and narrow-minded right, about mainstream right. fiction as mainstream fiction. A lot of it comes out in the news. Yes. Debate.
2: yeah. Yeah, when you see um, the science fiction and fantasy that mainstream embr- is, um a lot of it, you can see that they are, you can see a sort of arrogance to how it's being used. Um, it's like, well, like Coover wrote The Marker, yeah. is it?
1: Right.
2: You know, and Coover is like he's writing this story and it's like it is a horror story. It is one of the most horrific stories I've read in recent years. Terrifying. I mean, not terrifying, but horrific story. And yet it's not horror because it's Coover writing it. Right. Um, you know, it's anybody else wrote it in this world. It would be considered a brilliant piece of horror, but instead it has to be analyzed as a piece of literature. And I think that's I think that's regrettable. Of course at, at this point i am preaching to the choir but i'm good <laughs>
1: well,
2: and another thing yeah exactly
3: uh, we, we can look at the reverse and uh, I, again he's a close friend and i can't say i'm not biased but one of my favorite peter straub stories is mr club and mr cuff which is really disturbing it's his take on bartleby the scrivener that was my oh
2: story. nice yeah
3: and it's very literary and uh, uh it's it, it got a huge amount of respect in the field, I think it won, uh, certainly won, I think, the Stoker Award that year and was in a number of years best. But again, it was invisible to the Robert Coover reading world. Right,
2: and all the people who had read Barbara will be the Scrivener. Mm. You know, there are science fiction writers who have read Melville, but there aren't as many. You know, there. we are taught that if we read Melville, it's interesting. If we read Melville, we don't get to talk about it. It's like I read Tristram Shandy for pleasure. I diagram the sentences. Nothing makes me happier than Tristram Shandy, which is one of my comfort go-to novels. But that's a really eccentric, marginal thing to admit to as a science fiction writer. Now, there are a lot of fantasists who are like, you know, Joe Walton gets it. You know, so many yeah. fantasy writers um, come from that background. Terry Winling has probably read it 50,000 times. I bet she's memorized it. But, uh, but there are
3: a lot of English lit types that say, well, Lauren Stern was just off the wall. He doesn't right. fit. He, Marginal.
2: He is marginal. also transgressive. And I've read some really interesting essays about just how transgressive he was at his time.
3: We should mention as a parenthesis, now, since we haven't since this whole podcast began, Ta-da. at the mountain at, at the mouth of the river of bees is oh, yeah. from Small Beer Press is Kidge's first major collection of short fiction coming out in August, am I right? August,
2: I believe, fourteenth. <laughs> okay. And yeah. um, there will be dancing in the streets. I will be naked. I will tell you that. <laughs> today buy it on the 14th because on the 14th i will be naked so just think of that as you buy it. it I mean, not like that that's like such a treat.
3: I, but. Could, could, there's, there's a crowdsourcing. <laughs> that's right, That's right. Well, the reason, I, the reason is,
2: YouTube videos, nothing. No, oh, no, cool. no, no, I'll be no, no. The next
3: Amanda Palmer.
2: I'll be the next uh, Amanda Palmer.
3: No, no, I won't. The reason, the reason this discussion of Lawrence Stern made me think of At the Mouth of the River of Bees is that there is a Lawrence Stern story in there, which you've not been able to see other than on Kidge's website, which if you ever read any fragment of, Tristram Shandy and great and Tristram Shandy in my mind is one of the great unfinished novels.
2: Yes. Oh wait, Every, wait, no, wait that's awesome.
3: As a reader, as a reader, everybody I've known any number of people who think this is absolutely incredible and they get to the page that's nothing but marbled. Yeah, and type, they're like, what? And, I think, what and they're thinking, This is really creative. This is like nothing I've ever read and they never finish it.
2: Right, right, yeah. I know, that's the thing about Tristram Shandy, it, it could have been 5,000 words long, and you could have watched people drop off as they read. Yeah. You could have like put a website up, and it's like, I got up to page 612, mm-hmm. and the percentage would drop and drop and drop, and then there'd be a hardcore 500 people who would have finished the entire book. But basically, it would be a contest to see how far in you could get before mm-hmm. y- you just dropped, you dropped off the list. But, yeah, I mean, it it is a marvelous book because you get the feeling that Shandy could have just kept writing Forever. Yeah. He could have just gone on and on, it takes and another on life. which is what actually expect except for the fact except for the whale plot, I felt like uh about Moby Dick. Uh-huh. It's Like really he had the book, but if you gave him another fifty years, it would be four times as long. And it would all be scenes, eccentric scenes interspersed, you know, oh let me talk about you know not just whalers we've met Mm -hmm. but hey let's talk about the ways that we eat the fish so now we're going to prepare talk about preparation Mm -hmm. i mean he could have just gone it is a novel that could have expanded in every direction below the surface which is the primary story arc
3: and uh, uh, the story in at the mouth of the river of bees oh yes can you tell us the title okay your fiction we're
0: getting back to your fiction again because you know hmm well, yeah, it is the point to talk about your fiction and and how it came to be ten years since between books.
2: It's rabbit about other people's writing. So in, in,
0: anybody who's
3: a century novel, uh, with the chapter titles that have little summaries of the chapter divided by dashes and uh, and, and and the punctuation which is con- which consists of semicolons or colons and m dashes and m dashes and that sort of they thing.
2: They hemorrhaged m dashes.
3: Yeah, there's the. the the one story I, I i love because i'm a stern fan was was, uh-huh. was, was the Lawrence stern but but the, here's the other thing that, that brings oh. up is when you're when you're straddling this world between literary and genre fiction um you've got in story kit you've got references to damon knight which let's say the mainstream audience is not going to know what you're talking right, about yeah and then you do the story about which is which is a homage to, to Lawrence stern and you don't know whether any genre readers are going to pick that up um It's a cool story by itself. It's,
2: it's It's, you know, um, it's interesting because uh, I sent it to Small Beer because I was like, I would love to be published by Small Beer. Mm -hmm. And I thought they would be the perfect market because they are eccentric. Yeah. Go go eccentric. So I sent it to them and it took Gavin a while to make a decision. And he said what the impression I got from it was that he had a hard time figuring out you know, there was no consistency, there was no consistent style, yeah. you know, you couldn't just say, oh, you know, it's like Kelly Link, she has a beautiful, consistent style, Cat Valenti, you know, so many writers, there is a style to them that when you read, uh, like a Cat Valenti story, um, you or a China Mievel story, you know that you're in the hands, uh, you're reading a particular kind of fiction, you're reading a particular kind of story, and I was not doing that and he, you know, that makes it a harder sell because you can't just say, you know, a lyric artist of this generation mm. or, you know, an edgy, uh, transgressive writer of short short stories or something like that because it's like I really want to do everything which sounds weird and, and it does sound weird but I really do. I really want to try everything. Writing is a, a game. It's an adventure and I want to try one of everything you know, before I die, which gives me a good amount of time. If I wait to die until I've done one of everything, I'm in good shape, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Austin, and I figure that'll be a decade to figure that out.
0: So, so was the question how Spar is like the man who bridged the mist? Was that the sort of challenge for them that they couldn't see, in a way?
2: Um, when I wrote Spar, I'd been writing a whole series of really pretty stories, and I got to a point where I'm like, there are just some things that cannot be said prettily, mm. and I am really, I for one need not to write something pretty. I I am I have things that anger me, and instead of writing stories where the anger is buried deep, which it often is in my stories, um, I'm going to bring it right out, and I'm going to write a story that is aggressively about what it's about, which is odd because almost nobody figured out what it was about, which is about the ways that couples fail to communicate. Mm. Um, People eventually figured that out, but initially it's like there were a thousand interpretations and 999 of them were not what I intended, but still valid because the reader's Mm -hmm. response is always a valid response. Um, So spar was me saying I need on a craft level, I need to not write a pretty story because I'm writing too many pretty stories mm-hmm. on a content level. I, there are certain things that should not be backed away from certain things that should not be candy coded or that the reader should not be allowed off the pin. Uh, and that was a story where I was like, the reader needs to know that that, or the reader n- needs to feel that this is the way things can be and that no amount of just or no amount of well maybe it's a li- it's not quite what we think maybe everybody is on everybody maybe they, they just didn't communicate right maybe mm-hmm. the the tentacle the alien and the human maybe if they just tried a little harder it would have been better and sometimes that's not true and ponies is a clear uh, example of that because ponies is all about you know Shit happens. This shit happens.
1: I hope you can say
2: shit. This stuff happens to everybody at that age. Little boys, too, but it's worse for little girls. And you cannot pretend it doesn't. And you cannot say, well, they grow up tough, you know, or, well... That's just you know it teaches them how to work with other girls. It's a socializing stage or anything like that. Regardless of what else it is, it is brutal.
3: Well, that's interesting when you talk about or when you talk about editors not seeing consistency in your work because that's uh, thoroughly admirable in one way. But there's also consistency in theme and consistency in the term True. I use is choreography. Icon.
1: Yeah, the kind of movement yes, you make yeah. within a story. Yeah,
2: and and one of the genius. Movies,
3: okay, you're a genius. <laughs> well, a particular way of writing a story which is. Fairly rare and fairly disturbing is – we were talking about Hitchcock earlier – is not cutting away when the audience expects you to cut away. Right. At a certain point – and this certainly happens in ponies. It certainly happens in spar. I go back to Peter's work. There's a story of Peter's, Uh. which is just really disturbing about a young Boy being sexually abused in the movie theater, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, the reader thinking, "Okay, I get it, mm-hmm. and I, I understand that now. we don't have to hear." And, right. you get
1: more
2: and, and more it's like, and
3: more. on
2: the contrary, maybe right. you don't get it. Yeah, maybe it's you like, don't. Get maybe you do. You do not yet understand that this is non. You cannot. This boy cannot walk away, and therefore, mm-hmm. you should not either. Right. You. It's easy for you. And actually, a good example, and I was talking about this earlier, thinking about this, is uh, what happens to women who stand up against the sexual stereotypes in, women, in uh, games. Uh-huh. And those women are reviled. Those women, horrible things are, are said about them. I mean, I cannot, you know, even if this... Weren't a family podcast. I still could not say those things. Um, they say horrible things. They threaten death, death threats, because you're saying maybe the women in games are maybe a little too feminine or something, or maybe they, you know, it's like, but death threats for saying maybe there's another way to look at women. And these women, the fact that this kind of anger and hostility, this irrational hostility, is to me, really indicative. What's happening is that these, these men. Um, what happens it, it, sort of in the population is that we all, I mean, I've seen this because I've been uh. reading this stuff, The everybody after the initial atrocity, the initial comments, there's a lot of, you know, people who are really clearly just jerks, really clearly just psychopath, psychopaths, but then there are a lot of people who are like, well, you know, it's just words. Words can't hurt you. You know, really, you should just be a little tougher. You know, it's like, you know, don't be so sensitive. You know, he's calling you the C word, but... You know, that's just words. And you're like, this is hate language. And hate language, this is what drove the Jews into the prison camps. You know, this is not easy. And so to me, it's like walking away from that kind of stuff, walking away and saying, well, maybe you can back away from the little kid who's sexually abused, the child yeah. who's sexually abused. Maybe you could just, like, walk away, you know, uh, fade to black the same way E.M. Hull does when the sex gets good, and then come back hmm. like, You know the next morning and now now here's where he is it's like to me that is completely wrong and I know I'm just ranting about this but ten years ago I would not have ranted about this but the older I get the more I find offensive the fact that people walk away from
3: unpleasant truths well that's what that's what transgressive fiction has become right because Back in the 50s, it used to be, okay, you couldn't write about sex at all. You, right. you could not write a story like The Lovers*, which was an enormously influential story. Right. And we all think now, we assume. We're so much more hip we're now. We're so much Because Fifty
2: Shades of Grey, you know, they have yeah. nipple clamps. Oh, jeez. You know?
1: <laughs>
2: you, you <write> the... <laughs> no, no, actually, someone told me that. Okay.
0: <laughs> I have not read that. <laughs> <laughs> there
3: are taboos in the same way. That right. Play. Called attention to their right. taboos in and our taboo
2: is not sex. It's like we really don't care about nipple clamps anymore. Yeah. What we really care about is, oh, yeah, la, 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 sexual abuse, you know, um, children being consistently sexually abused, the sexual subordination of women, the, the fact that sex is, uh, that rape is being used as a tool in war you know this stuff is like really important but we're like well it happens to a lot of people a long way from us you know those are you know brown
3: that you we know? talked about we had Nadia Corfor on our podcast a while ago and she used weaponized rape as a major theme and who fears yes. that and her whole point was this is not a far future fantasy no this is
2: mm-hmm. freaking happening right, right mm-hmm. now it's for some reason don't notice it well I, there are many reasons we don't notice it but one of the reasons we don't notice it is it's not happening to our daughters
1: you not know, to our daughters.
2: our daughters it's happening to three quarters of a million daughters in right. certain African countries, but not to our daughters. Our daughters are protected, and our daughters are increasingly shielded because even though we are not willing to ever face what's happening, we are still nevertheless we are nevertheless affected by it. And so we're like, well, this is happening to a lot of other people, but my daughter, I'm going to protect her more mm. and more and more. You know, so my daughter is now completely shuttered and protect.
3: You know, but shielded. So- the thing is, okay, to get back to ponies, and because pro- that takes place in the protected world of Hello Kitty. The land of wee tennis. You know, what's my, my, yeah. my Little Pony? Is, is that the thing? What's yes, the, what's My it? Little Pony. <laughs> it, it's magic. Yeah, it's a horror story for nine-year-olds, and it's great. Oh, it is mean. It's mean, but...
2: But, you know, it sucks. No nine-year-old gets out alive. Um, They don't. You come out you come out strong or something like that. And I actually read a, a blog post once where somebody was saying which I thought was interesting they were saying it's a pity that kids childhood was like that because my childhood which was very different um, than than what mm-hmm. she perceived as my Midwestern upbringing my childhood was not like that uh, the girls were sisters you know we were supported mm-hmm. by our mothers and stuff like that and that may be true and if that is true I am so happy for that person Um, Mm -hmm. And actually, I never went to a cutting-out party. I never was invited to those parties. So I never was put in the difficult position of having to decide whether I was going to perjure myself, whether I was going to corrupt myself. Uh It just didn't come up. Um, I never had to decide whether I was going to become something other than I was, and yet I did. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel what happens then is we... Uh, Like little girls and stuff, it's like not every little girl's experience is the same. But I think underlying it all, there is a stage. There's there's something genetic that happens at that age as little girls learn how they are going to have to, as little monkey girls, because Mm -hmm. we are all ultimately monkeys. As this troop population learns how to live together, which involves developing a pecking order.
3: We got to get uh, Jonathan. We have to get we have to get Sophie back on for a podcast. <laughs> we do. We do. Jonathan's daughter Sophie, who's now twelve.
0: Twelve. She, she's no, 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 no. That's Jessica who turned twelve uh, yesterday or last week. Uh, Sophie is ten, going on eleven this October. So she was
2: like, Oh my goodness! So she's, she's right at a that stupid, age.
3: But boy, was she good. Yeah. She was our most popular guest. Sorry. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: I mean, what's so interesting about she said, she's bringing a completely, a generational shift from us. Oh yeah. You know, she's, she is like from a whole different world. Mm. Uh, it's pretty cool because she's going to have different issues with the same stories that we've all looked at.
0: Yes. And uh-huh. analyzed. Well, I find myself constantly trying to get a grip on her worldview compared to mine. I mean, ignoring the fact that there are obvious things like I'm a 48 year old male and she's a 10 year old girl. And even just, just just the cultural references. I mean, when I was 18, Casablanca seemed like a fabulously old movie to me. And now I realize that uh, something like Close Encounters of the Third Kind is as old as Casablanca to her. I'm sorry, as old as Casablanca was to me, to her. Right. So yes, all, all those references are different and strange. And... You sort of – you get a little peek every now and again through her eyes at how the world is, but it really is completely different and quite interesting.
2: My my brother, who is 50, and mm. he has a 16-year-old, a uh, – oh, gosh, they grow fast mm. – a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old, mm. and uh, he has said um, – because we were talking about how um, – uh, North Carolina, uh, put up a, uh, same sex marriage amendment yeah. against same sex mm-hmm. marriages. And Richard said, well, you know, cause he's so much more in touch with kids. Um, he said, well, you know, what's going to happen is really everybody under a certain age really doesn't care anymore. Yeah, yeah. They really don't. So what's going to have to happen is a whole bunch of people are going to have to die off. And then the new mental sort of plan is going to fall into place because it's already there
3: so yeah somebody was saying that to us a couple of days ago i forgot who it was that the debate's over the debate
2: is over this is this is a rear guard action Uh this is you know the last people you know it's like go ahead go ahead all man the barricades you know and everybody else rushes behind them and it's it this is an argument and debate that is done -hmm. And yet we continue to go on with it. But but, we we
0: have no. But we have to, and I'll tell you why we have to. Because on one hand, I agree with you. I mean, to to, uh, my daughter, both of my daughters, who you know, they have a gay aunt and a gay uncle, and the idea that same-sex couples are strange would have them. Utterly, you know, befuddled.
2: Yeah, how could that be? You know, it's like I know these people. But
0: but on the other hand, I mean, just recently here in Australia, we lived through a period of time where everybody thought, of course, Australia was going to become a republic. Absolutely it would happen and we would cast off the British and we just had to wait for it to happen. And then the entire temper of the time changed and and it went off the boil. So on one hand, I completely agree with your your brother's point that there is an ambient level of thought that is changing generationally, generationally. And we're going to end up in a position where a new paradigm is likely to be in place. But if we sit back now, we risk undercutting the process that will allow that to come into place.
2: Right. I think that's right. Um, When you say came off the boil, I think that's really – that's actually a very relevant phrase because I think what happens is that we – Things stop becoming critical mm-hmm. sometimes because the debate's already finished, but we just aren't done. And so what happens is that we're like, well, you know, we have more important things to think about, mm. you know, so we never actually change the rules about gay marriage because frankly, we're struggling to protect our pensions,
1: mm.
2: you know, so mm-hmm. so we never really go back and we revise the rules or revise the yeah. sort of broad public the understanding of what the public consensus is which is not the same as the public consensus in the meantime we all move on to pensions or something like that mm. a few rabid people are still stuck back in the gay marriage is bad gay marriage is bad gay marriage is bad but but the the boil has come off it's no longer critical more people are married than aren't for instance mm-hmm. many states uh, what is it nine states have now legalized gay marriage in the United States well
3: and there's, you the know region. it's
2: like it's already moved on because we have other things that are more urgently concerning and it is and I say that not to belittle what it's like to no. be a gay couple where one partner struggling to be allowed to make decisions about her husband's or her wife's you know um, health care But still, you know, it's like other things are happening and people now feel, yeah, of course they should have it. Why are Mm -hmm. we even having this? Let's go back to pensions.
0: Yeah, And it's like, you know, we've won the argument, but we don't need to actually win the battle. Right. And so it it never gets nailed down and legislation changed or whatever else. And that's what would concern me with this and, and in other instances and why I would be careful about how I talked about it just so that, it doesn't isn't allowed to be taken off the board because there's one feeling that goes that you know, when when you know, the president of the United States comes out pretty much in favor and supporting uh, gay marriage, well, surely that's it. You know, you've won. All the well, laws will now be yeah. changed. That's it. We can we can all go home. Yay.
2: Right. No. But, not, but
0: nothing changed. You know. Well,
3: it doesn't yeah. change because you, you, okay,
0: we have to explain what it's like living
3: in the United States with a political party that believes that. You know, our president is still an alien from Arcturus. Right, yeah. And, and whatever he says is clearly the result of, you know, his co-conspiracy. He's clearly
2: being mind-controlled by Kenya or Russia or maybe mm. China or by Arcturus. Arcturus, yeah. You know, it's coming from somewhere, but it's not coming from him because mm. it's terrifying to think that, you know, we might have somebody like Barack Obama in the in the office, so, which boggles my mind. But... Can Which we, you can't see right now, Jonathan, well, is me clutching oh, my hair. I'm not watching, she's really I her am clutching my
3: hair. Hair clenches really
0: well. Is um, that is that same process the process where we lose transgressive fiction as well? You know, battles are fought in literature and they're won and they're lost, but they're never ever permanently won. And so there's this feeling. I mean, we had Barry Malzberg on here months back saying that the golden yeah. era of science fiction was the 50s because that was the greatest time for craft. Uh, and that's a debatable point but that was his his view pretty much mm-hmm. and you could look at some of the work being written from the you know through the 60s and into the 70s and you think well thematically it's, that was when the transgressive battle was won but it's mm. 2012 and are these battles ever won
2: you know let's think uh something that i just this moment am thinking about cold equation
0: mm-hmm. um yeah.
2: if we go back to godwin and you know Godwin wrote his story, and it was quite transgressive when it came out. It's like, oh, my God, some things you cannot screw with nature. You know, the rules of physics trump everything. They trump sentiment. They trump uh, narrative convention. They trump the human impulse. They trump the happy ending. They trump everything. Mm. That's Godwin. So if you readdress it now, you still need to because we still need to go back and say yeah that's great you know it's like we're really happy with the fact that people have better jobs than now and yet physics still rules environmental damage
3: is still irrevocable that's a good point because that is one of the stories which is never nobody at this point admits it was ever a very good story it's mm-hmm. and, and Campbell interfered with it and it's All right. and it's and the, the the role of the woman in it is just oh she so, oh, there's yeah.
2: there's so many things that are worth writing but about or talking it's, about but for
3: for fifty-five, so sixty years, people have been responding to that story. And uh, one of our friends who's here this weekend is James Patrick Kelly, who wrote one of the best responses to yeah. the story. And think like a dinosaur. Uh, it's 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 one of those things that sort of obsesses the science fiction world. Like how do you how do you deal with the fact that we now have to confront reality? I should say. Right.
2: Right. The universe does not care, and uh, on all levels, that is a story that needs to be asked.
3: It goes back to 18. I'm trying to think. 18. I don't know. Stephen Crane wrote a poem, Hmm. of which I think most of, if not the entire text, was a man said to the universe, "Sir, I exist." To which the universe replied, "That does not create in me a sense of obligation."
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it
3: was. And, that was, and when you think of Red Badge of Courage, which you can read as a science fiction narrative because mm-hmm. it is a nihilistic kind of thing, right, nothing right. cares yeah. whether you die or not. It's apocalyptic. And, and to some extent, all that the Cold Equations was in 1956 was catching up, or 55, was catching up with what American literature realized during the Civil War and world literature realized during World War I.
2: Right, yeah. I mean, Melville, really, I mean, once really, It's the story says shit happens. Nothing makes sense, mm. and then you die. I mean, that's right. what Melville says. It says He says a lot of other mm. things, but that's the core story. Right. And that is the core story that comes up in literature, literary fiction, I think, all the time. But with science fiction and fantasy, we definitely had a tendency to step away from that. You know, mm. shit happens, but it's because Sauron is making it happen. Mm. Shit happens, but... If I just do the right things, I can save the if world. If I'm smart enough engineer. If I'm smart enough or if I'm strong enough or if I'm a good enough, whatever. You know, if I'm kind fast Stuart enough. Stuart
3: Smalley is the Heinlein hero, isn't he? Yeah. Doggone it, yeah. I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and I can. <laughs> you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. So.
0: Is is that why a lot of the discussion about the cold equations these days is not actually addressing what it's about but arguing with it? Where John yes. Campbell becomes Sauron because he's come yeah. in and he's kind of made Godwin manipulate the story. And if you read the story really, really carefully, there are other things that could have been done to prevent, right. you know, you know to, to give us the goddamn happy ending.
2: So, exactly. I mean, mm. what I find interesting about it is is that you cannot, I mean, the whole point of it and the whole story is jacked up. And, you know, Campbell set it up. Uh, Godwin set it up so that you could not win it's a it's a losing game it can never be won because every time you say what about this solution Mm -hmm. he takes it away from you and what he's trying to do is force you to again transgressive fiction he's trying to force you to the unpalatable fact that you the fact that sooner or later you have to admit you're still on the pin you still cannot get off the pin that's true yeah you know maybe this, maybe that. But the pin is still there. Mm. And he's just, you know, while it is manipulative, while it is a false story and a broken story, because he is doing that, that is the point of the story. His, Nature yeah. always works. Physics always works, no matter how much you want sentiment to
3: trump. Mm. Mm. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the flaws in the story are the not that not that that point was a bad point. The story was badly done in all kinds yeah. of ways. Yeah. There were all kinds of gaping holes in it for a later critics and writers. Andy Duncan actually wrote a
1: yeah, brilliant essay yeah. about the
3: story. Of course the story is flawed and, and it's like Swiss cheese in terms of plot holes, but the point is a very, very valid point. And we right, and, and right. haven't outgrown that. And, and, and
2: another writer could come back to that idea, except that the story has become so seminal. Um, another writer could come back to that idea and say, okay, let's put a situation where the only solution is to admit that there is no solution and, mm. let, and that you will have to dump her out of the airlock sorry for the spoiler but um that that is the only solution you could write a a much more realistic story um, where we watch the two of them agonize much more naturalistically where we could watch the decision being made Mm -hmm. in a more complicated fashion and where other things were attempted he does cut his legs off or whatever the other solutions are but in the end the truth still holds I mean, you know, you could have done it differently, and you could even have written the story in a completely different way where they really do have enough mm-hmm. fuel because, yes, it is ridiculous. Of course, the, the, but the, the, that's not the point of it. It's a thought experiment, right. mm. and it's a valid thought experiment. You know, it's, it is like the ethical experiment, uh, thought experiments that philosophers do. Okay, yes, but what if you really
1: mm-hmm.
2: – what if, you know, the other really was foul – you know, so now let's think about what you would do. Yes, the other is not the evil guys you think they are. Mm-hmm. But what if they really were? What would you owe them then? You know, so the ethical question then becomes very complicated. But you have to push. And that's the thing the fantasy and science fiction do. Because they give us the chance, like with Spar, um, back to my story, Good. with <laughs> yes. Spar, where it's like, yeah, there is no way, there is no way out of that there is no way you can candy coat what's happening. And there is no way the reader can, no way I could as the writer, there is no way you can get away from it except to stop reading it. And if I do my job right, you can't stop reading it either.
3: I think that's what, I think that's partly what worked with the story. I think Spar in its way is like the love.
2: Yes. Uh, I was, I was thinking of the lovers as I wrote it. Yeah. Um, not because I thought I could stand up to Philip Jose Farmer, but because I was like, let's, just go all the way there. Let's and follow, every time it, you're like, Philip yeah. Jose Farmer, how could he go farther? Oh, I know. we <laughs> yeah. have other people show up. That'll be great. Yeah, so, I mean, what happens if you just keep pushing it? You know, you can write the story about the guy who the female alien needs. You know, uh-huh. you could write all these different versions that are like the B-plus version. But Farmer just kept going there and going there and scaring the hell out right. of us and then going there harder. And that I loved about that story
3: one of the things that uh and, and i think sparta is the same thing and i think what's interesting is when we when, again when we talk about um i don't know drilling down whatever you want to call it in terms of a narrative the transgressive fiction is always there you mm-hmm. can't say that we've okay we we are now dealing with um I, i've not read it yet but one of the novels i'm curious about is is chip delaney's new novel uh-huh. which he himself describes as gay porn and i'm sure a good chunk of it is that mm-hmm. um, And I'm thinking, well, okay, gay porn is not necessarily transgressive anymore, but how you write it could be.
2: And what you do with it, I mean, because we talked a little bit about transgressive earlier, Mm. and there seem to be different ways you can be transgressive. Mm. Back in the 50s, um, well, I mean, actually think about contemporary times. Right now, a lot of writers... Um, and a lot of fiction appears to be transgressive Mm
1: -hmm. because
2: it's writing about kink or it's writing about something that we can still consider transgressive, but the core of the story is not transgressive. Mm -hmm. Back to Fifty Shades of Grey, ultimately, it's a love story. It is the most conservative story there is.
1: Really?
2: Uh, Well, it's a love story. Um. It's about a boy and a girl who meet, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, but we tend to confuse it with transgressive fiction because the sexuality is transgressive and even that is not fair but there but that's a case where the core of the story is conventional but the uh, appurtenances are transgressive and i think that that happens a lot that we see that where the the fundamental core of a story is basically old it's basically looks back towards Mm -hmm. old old school interpretations of love or you know justice prevails or something like that, but, in the, but, oh, it's scary, you know, because people get tied up or something like that. Um, I or more, so, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I think, you know, back in the fifties, yes, that stuff was very, very scary. Oh my goodness. You know, tied up, you know, naked, whatever. Um, but there was also a fundamental transgression as well.
3: Mm-hmm. One of the, in, in the 1950s, I'm going to get in serious trouble if this turns out to be.
2: <laughs> right. Right. You're going to cut this part, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, but, uh, no, was, no, I'm going to put it out because I love watching Gary get in trouble.
3: <laughs> there was a biography of DeSade, I think, written for a paperback original by Robert Silverberg.
2: Oh, sweet. That would and, be interesting.
3: Because Bob was writing all kinds of nonfiction. Bob is one of the great researchers. You were talking about a really great yeah. researcher. I mean, for, for a while. In the, I'm no
2: Bob Silverberg. You know 60- Bob Silverberg, and I'm no
3: Bob Silverberg. Well, nobody's a Bob Silverberg. One of the things he could do would go to the public library and find out enough stuff to write any nonfiction book he wanted to write. I mean, he was like, I mean, not just as a science fiction writer, Silverberg was in some ways the consummate 20th century writer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. He could do the
3: Internet before there were. He could
2: write anything. Yeah. And there
3: was a book called Philosopher of Evil, a philosopher of evil. Boy, am I in trouble if I'm wrong about this by Walter Drummond. And I'm pretty sure Walter Drummond was Bob Silverberg. And Jonathan, you know Bob as well as I do, if not better.
0: Yeah, or anything about that? No, we've we've not really talked about the the pseudonymous uh, work that he's done, or a lot of the nonfiction work that he did. Though he did a great deal of it in the 70s and I think early 80s. Yeah. 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 Um, well,
3: I guess what I'm thinking was what was happening in the 60s and 70s and 80s was the mainstreaming of Dassad and the mm-hmm. mainstreaming yeah. of Sakhar Masak, um and the idea of uh, masochism and bondage and BDSM and that sort of thing. It's it's fine in science fiction and fantasy now. The details. Right. The drilling down into the details of it is not.
2: Well, you know, what I would say is that um, you can now write a story about um, tying somebody up and cutting them up with a knife. Mm -hmm. You can write that story. Mm -hmm. um, And people will go, ooh, you know, knife play or something Mm -hmm. like that. But you still cannot write a story where you say um and i'm i'm not saying that this is true but i'm going to say it because it's transgressive that women are all essentially enslaved by men that mm-hmm. and this is a um an extremist feminist stand if you were to say that it's like i could tie people up all day and people would be like oh that's titillating but mm-hmm. if i write a story where i say all marriage is slave slavery or yeah. all male-female interactions are mm-hmm. slavery. That story, that would be dangerous, and that would be that would be unacceptable, mm-hmm. you know. And that would get me the internet, actually. Do you, so. get that?
1: Do
0: you get So that? don't
2: put that into the meta uh, meta tags, okay?
0: <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'll leave that out of, out of the uh, the, of the, out out the show notes Yeah, uh,
2: there's
0: certain
3: uh, common threads you don't need. I will, <laughs> and I
2: will say something about fiction in general, um, because that makes me think of it. Um, I think I write a lot of things I don't believe. Um, and An example is Evolution of Trickster Stories, where the argument seems to be that pet ownership is slavery. Um, and that is the argument in the story. But it is not a PETA story. I personally think my dog is, well, I don't have one right now, but I personally think my dogs are better off and happier with me than without. I think my cats are happier with me then not with me. I think that pet ownership is is a two-way street, but in in evolution of tricks stories, I seem to be presenting the argument that no animal should be owned, that there is no ownership possible. So I find sometimes I do say things in the course of a story that I don't quite believe, but that once I start pursuing that topic or that thought, this is where it goes. You know, and sometimes I will say, yes, this is where that chain goes. And actually, that's what happens at mm. the end of uh, trickster stories. I say, this is where it goes. Animal ownership is slavery. That's You can take that story all the way there if you want to, and if, mm. that is your, if that is what you want to believe. But in the end, what I'm saying is, yes, but nevertheless, the narrator, who is me, is saying, but that's not always true. You know, that's yeah. not true. So you end up yeah. doing that, that you end up as a writer following the logic of the story, but then. I at least have to step back and say, yes, that is the logic of the story, but that is not Kish Johnson logic. That is not right to me.
0: Do you That's have- fascinating. Go ahead, Jonathan. I was just say, do you find that happens often when you're writing, that that you end up following the logical narrative of a story to a point, yes, and you yes. you don't agree with it, you don't believe in it, uh, or it, in fact, is sufficiently transgressive to your own thoughts that you almost don't even want to put it out?
2: Right, yeah. I think that happens. This story, Mantis Wives, that I'm working on right now, um, what's happening with that, and it's complicated, it's very complicated, but men and women, um, uh, one of the things men and women do when they're together is that they unite to create progeny. You know, that is our genetic imperative. Mm-hmm. So, the, But they are slightly different. The male's genetic imperative is to produce offspring, the female's gener- genetic imperative is to produce offspring, but to be able to raise them to viability. And mm. if you go to mantises, um, you know, a mantis, uh, you know, and this is somewhat apocryphal. It does happen, but but the reasons why are sort of, it's complicated. So I, I know that this is not 100% true, so dear readers, I understand, um, mm. but the, this, the feeling, the popular legend is that the female, the male mates with the female. He's much smaller than the female, and mm-hmm. at some point during coition, the female turns around, rips his head off, and eats it, and then continues to eat pieces of him as his back end and keeps humping. Which is metaphorically fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, it is catnip to a writer.
1: Oh, <laughs>
2: And to a feminist writer, it is eight kinds of catnip.
1: So, <laughs>
2: so you've got this, um, this situation. But if you sort of plant that onto the human thing, that is exactly what the female mantis is doing. She needs, um, she needs sperm to create the young, and yeah. she needs something to raise the young to viability, which is called sustenance, right, which in this food. case is the male. Right. She eats the male. So why is the male there? And that's the question. What does he get out of it? Yes, he gets his progeny out there. But doesn't it seem like on a sort of symbolic level, he could just like do the thing that, you know, the unmarried 25 25-year-old guy does, just spooge and run? What? You know, mm. but they don't. The mantises don't. The male mantises don't. Now, various reasons, but when you apply that as a metaphor to human interactions, what is it that keeps the man mm. around even though he is going to end up Um, again, very politically um, incorrect, but a lot of men end up feeling really misunderstood and taken advantage of because they're working two jobs, or they're working really, really hard. Their wife is raising a child, which is also a really hard job. Mm -hmm. But the man ends up feeling like, all I am doing is bringing food home. That is my job. It's like she's not interested in me. My wife is not interested in me. She and my child are now completely fixed on each other. So what am I doing here exactly? Well, that is the nature of the mantis male Mm -hmm. and that is also i think the nature of the human male um that uh, at least in some cases you want to make sure your child achieves you know viability you want to you want to you may not want that job but you really do want Mm -hmm. to see your son grow up Mm -hmm. you really want to see your daughter grow up and you will do what it takes but still you sometimes regret it or resent it and, Jonathan, you're a father, so you can tell me I'm completely wrong.
0: No, I don't think and you're I, completely wrong.
2: you told me because the Mantis yeah, story is currently stalled out. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, do, I don't think that you're wrong at all. I think that's very – Here, Jonathan. Yeah. Hello? Two girls. Yes,
3: I do. And they're at ages which are, I imagine,
0: fairly challenging at this point.
3: Uh,
1: yes, it's true, I'll... yes. Yes.
0: Uh, we, we, we had knocked down drag outs last night. Yes, that's true. I ended oh, up with floor bruised and injured. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, well, just not, not, Jonathan, if you're yeah.
2: having that with daughters, yes. imagine what it would be like with a son.
0: You know, you, you talk to people about this. And I really don't. The, yes, there's a difference. And it's one of those things. I mean, you, you talk about it, looking at something as a feminist or um, as someone interested in gender. And I want to reject the idea that men and women are just drastically fundamentally different, but there really are psychological differences and differences in the approaches to problem solving right. and all this sort of thing. And you do see it in daughters. I have to say in many ways right now, I think I've probably find it easier to my way of thinking, raising daughters over sons, but I haven't had to raise sons. And right. some of my friends who who have disagree strongly I think that you know boys are much easier to raise. So
1: Yeah.
2: And and maybe some of that, I mean, my brother has two sons and a daughter, um, and when he talks about them, he loves them all deeply, um, but he has different relationships with Mm. each of them, and some of that is age, and some of that is gender, you know, um, my brother and I had a problematic upbringing, um, and... We talk we he and I talk a lot about our parents and what exactly was going on for them and it is true that my brother has nothing to say to my dad and I have a challenging relationship with my mom whereas I adore my dad with it and an mm. incoherent and you know completely I mean it's like there's so <laughs> many things wrong with my dad but I adore him and my brother gets along extremely well with my mom so there are weird things that happen not so weird though I think they're much more common
0: than that. Oh yeah. A lot of
2: daughters love their dads, and a lot of mothers love their
0: sons. Very much. I mean, I can see it in my in in Sophie particularly, where um, there's just time where she's going like, I want your attention, I want your time, right. I want to be buddies with you now, and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, which is a great gift for anybody, and uh-huh. you know you, know, you mm-hmm. hope that you're just up to that task for the years when it's relevant, because then suddenly you turn that magical sort of hormone-driven corner. And for five or six years, they don't want to see you.
2: Right. And as a, as a father, um, your daughter's relationship with you is going to be different than as a mother. Definitely. Um, I think that a fourteen-year-old daughter and her thirty-five-year-old mother have a very fraught relationship because you were not. And it's ridiculous, but you know, you and your mother are competition. Mm. You know, when you are, even though you don't actually want to have sex with your dad, at least most of them don't, but Mm. nevertheless, your dad is the clearest, most visible, most immediate example of a male that you have. He is provably Mm. viable. He has provably uh, created children. Mm. He has provably supplied stuff for the house. You know you know he is capable, so even though you have no interest in your dad at all, nevertheless, your dad is a model for what of, a model for what yes, your yeah. mate to be whereas a daughter with a mother it 's like you look at your mother and she 's competition yes she is this is what I have to be to get a man because my mom has a man, or this is what I have to fight to get a man because my mom has a man, and i don 't yes. so it 's really interesting to me
0: Yeah, and I mean i 'm intimately aware of as well that what you 're doing. Uh, as you live your your life with your children and in your relationship with your partner, that you're playing out their most obvious model for how a relationship should work. Right. So right. if you have something that's undesirable in your relationship, you're you're giving bad modelling to your kids. Right, right. And right. something to feel very concerned and worried about. You know, because you're sitting there going, "Well, is is this how how my two girls are going to see?" A birthday party runs. Right. How Christmas runs. How right. uh you help each other doing anything.
2: Right. How do we fight about mm-hmm. money? You know, it's like what yeah. are my daughters learning about how husbands and wives interact yeah. when they watch me and my wife fight about money or something? Or yeah. how we cope with money. How do we do our budget yes. even? Yes.
1: Particularly
0: you know, since they don't understand the other eighty percent of what the what of of, is- of the of everything that goes like, into what, what they see. Is-
2: dynamic they don't see history and they don't yeah. see practicalities all they see is mom and dad yeah um they see a male and a female um and how they interact they're only role models well no
3: that i mean i've got i i have to admit i have no kids i've talked about this but i have grandkids because mm-hmm. i married somebody who had kids um and uh, it, it's interesting to watch the difference between uh the kids who, who are raised in a traditional family the kids almost close to have a you know Mom and dad, and exactly uh-huh. what you're describing. They're seeing the dad and then um, another set of kids who are the oldest grandkids I have, whose whose dad more or less left the family, and his mom now has a female partner,
1: uh-huh.
3: and and so uh, one of them grew up essentially from preteenhood until he's graduating from high school just last month, with two moms, uh-huh. and it's what it's fascinating to me to watch his reaction he's much more, in some ways, affectionate toward me than, than any of the kids are.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um,
3: but at the same time, he's, and so he's in the one sense, he seems to be looking for a father model. But on the other hand, he's perfectly cool with the fact that he has two mom models mm-hmm. that are different. Right. Um, and, and kids, my, I guess the only point to learn from this is the kids adjust to the circumstances. Right. And they find what they need in the relationships yeah. they have to use for what modeling. Well, it's
2: interesting with two moms or two dads, you, you aren't just having the mom role model and the dad role model right. you're now given alternatives there's the mom this and there's the mom that so in some ways they are getting um, they may not have the dad role model that they can no, then they sort of model themselves on but now they have they recognize that there is more than one way to be a mom exactly one of the things
3: one of the things I'd heard about and maybe it's a pop culture stereotype that you know if you've got two moms, Um, that one of them is going to be perceived as the dad and the other one isn't. That's not what happened at all. Yeah. They're literally two moms. They're different styles of momhood. Uh But there's, you know, the, the dad is, in this case... Essentially, out of the picture. Yeah. Or there, there are bits and pieces of the so dad. So there is he no dad
2: figure. No. There is no dad role. <laughs> but in he the house. assembles
3: a dad. I'm one right. of the, I'm one of the fragments from which he assembles yeah. his dad image. I right. Think. Yeah. But no, he knows perfectly well that he has two moms, and he's cool with it now. He's mm-hmm. graduated, graduated in high school. He's going to college. School.
2: Yay! And yet, he did not turn into a drug addict, in spite of having two mothers. He did not end up mm-hmm. having sex, anonymous mm-hmm. sex in bus stations. It's like, how could that be?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: It's amazing. <laughs> no, okay, we're kidding. We're,
0: we're <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah,
2: I,
1: were, we thought
0: was, you were. I was thinking we are getting towards the end of our hour, Gary, by, by but some But we so much fun, John. And, and the kids does have a party to go to, so I, I feel like you should at least flag that. Yes,
2: mm. I do have a party to go to, so. and probably I should eventually. Um, and instead, you can just invite me to another one.
0: We'd
3: be delighted we to do, do more that. Podcasts. I want to talk more about Lauren Stern, and after you've been in Kansas for a while, what it's oh like my to goodness. teach. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, what it's like
2: to and teach, and, and teaching mainstream versus genre. Yeah. I would love to talk about that because I personally – my my jihad, my secret, only not-so-secret mission is uh-huh. to try to build a bridge where um, – because I think, I think there is something really, really cool that could happen. If you have the sort of narrative focus that we see in science fiction and fantasy and the careful craft, because Mm -hmm. to me, that is something that we sometimes miss in genre is, is uh, the, I mean, I value the obsessive attention to craft we see in some literary fiction. And I think that it can be useful in fantasy or science fiction. Mm. A brilliantly crafted science fiction story is stronger than a poorly crafted science one, fiction
3: okay, story. Okay, this is, I, I know we're running out of time, Jonathan. But yeah,
2: thing, yeah, will talk uh, really we'll,
3: fast. We'll, we'll talk fast. But well, one of the people who used to, for for like 30 years, taught creative writing at uh, Ohio University. Not Ohio State, but Ohio in whatever
1: Ooh.
3: Town. It was Daniel Keats. Yeah, uh, yeah. Flowers or and of course, year after year he used to come to ICFA. Yeah. Uh, ICFA. And year after year, um, students would sign up for Daniel Key's creative writing class thinking, wow, I've read i am I'm gonna learn how to write science fiction. And in the first semester he would never let them write science fiction. Mm-hmm. And the second semester he said, Fine. But his point was that in order to write a science fiction story, you first have to learn how to write a short right. story. Right. Right, exactly. Because science fiction is writing a good short story which and, is hard enough and harder than that is, is writing yes, it in a future exactly. or in a science fiction environment. Yeah. Student, He drove students nuts that way because he said, no, you cannot write a science fiction story until you learn how to write a story.
2: I, oh, I feel so uncomfortably <laughs> on his side on this. I really do because I, I feel the same way, but I just don't feel like I can just say you're only going to write mainstream because I never would have written if, if, People had said your first three stories must be mainstream, I would not have written. Because why? So there has to be a way to do that. I but I do believe that science fiction or fantasy is more rigorous than than mainstream fiction. But you can't – We work. have twice as many obligations yeah. and um, exactly. requirements. Exactly.
3: Yeah,
2: and that's the problem is that we should be writing – we need to be writing at the literary level and writing science fiction.
3: That's Stan's yeah. point. Was, was his point entirely. Yes, that, you know, yeah. You start off by reading Flannery O'Connor and, and Flann- uh, Catherine Mansfield and yeah, yeah. whoever and Chekhov. And once you know what a story is,
1: yeah.
2: then
3: you write a I mean, uh, Even
1: though,
2: I mean, it's like Catherine Mansfield gives me nosebleeds. Flannery O'Connor nosebleeds. I hate <laughs> Flannery
1: um, You know, it's
2: like I, I'm not a fan of a lot of 20th century mm. um, or very late 19th century literature. And yet they are so careful. You know, they are the stories are kind of dumb because you're like, oh, who really cares about what happens at your freaking your summer garden party? party
3: yeah. <laughs> I
1: don't.
2: Care. I really don't. Um, I don't care about what happened. I don't care why you feel like you can't tell your boyfriend blank. I just don't care. But it was good enough for Henry James and he did great stuff with it. And that's something if we could learn how to write books great literature and great science fiction,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I feel like that would be the best literature of all because we would have all bits would be available. You know, nothing oh. would be off the table. You could write The Lovers, which allows you to do things that no mainstream story could, and yet you could also be mm-hmm. writing something that is ravishing,
1: yeah.
0: you know, on
2: a text level. So...
1: And,
0: we'll have, we're going to have to follow this up. Yeah, this. We we love to- I think love we'll have to go out in, in a few, you know, sort of, in three, four weeks after you get home and everything else, we'll fire up the, the, the podcast again and, and continue the conversation.
2: Oh, yeah. I would love that. Okay.
0: Yeah, but in the meantime. Yeah, those. once fall oh,
2: semester begins, then I, you know, by then I'll be just like completely knee deep in reading Nathaniel <laughs> Hawthorne uh, and stuff. So uh, I'll be cool. rabid.
0: All right. Okay. Well, with that, thank you very much, Kids Johnson, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and a joy.
2: Thank you. I've really had fun. It's been a great conversation. I would, I love conversations it's like this, fun, yeah. and there aren't enough of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And thank you, Gary. I guess I'll talk to you again sometime in the next while,
3: if next, not before next try? weekend.
0: Are, are, are we both going to be home next weekend? I think it's a rare weekend when we're both at home, and I believe with a little bit of luck, uh, Kelly Link and Gavin <laughs> Grant will be home as well. Not our oh. homes, their home, um, obviously, and we will talk to them because it's all, all part right. of, it's all part of us talking to, the, to to small beer people at the moment which is which this ties into oh, yeah. as well
3: okay, the small beer festival that's right at the yes. at the mouth of the river of bees is being published by small beer in August, uh, like,
2: August 2012 August
3: 2012 yeah. so and, and next week we'll be talking to the publishers of it with any luck that's
2: we, right i'm sure could, i expect you two to obsessively talk only about my collection
0: i can ask them my story kit isn't in the collection Oh, it is. Story Kit is in the collection. Not according to the table of contents on their website.
3: I have oh. the ARC.
0: I have the ARC. I don't have it with me, but She does there. have the arc. Okay. Well, on that cheery, if slightly controversial note. Right. So until uh,
3: next all right. time.
0: Okay. Okay. Bye.
2: Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.